If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. We're coming very quickly to the end of our series through the Gospel of Luke. And in recent weeks, we've seen the final week of Jesus' life and ministry culminating in His death on the cross. Then last week, we saw from the opening verses of chapter 24 the news that Christ rose from the dead. Today, we continue to see that good news, the triumphant conclusion of Jesus' saving work and even the gospel itself. And as we've come to expect now over these two years from Luke, this account is quite vivid and bears all the marks of something authentic and historical rather than mythical or fictional. But this passage is not simply interesting or important as an historic reality. These verses also reveal spiritual realities that are essential even for us today. Specifically, they point to our own spiritual journey and how it is meant to end in joy through the risen Christ. So it begins with two disciples returning home after the unexpected and even shocking events over Good Friday and Easter morning. Let's pick it up in verse 13. That very day, two of them, We're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, They had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. May God bless the reading of his word. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor of great renown from a previous generation. For years now, compilations of his sermons in book form have encouraged pastors and believers alike all around the world. And in one of his sermons about this passage, he talks about counseling with a man in a small Welsh town at the request of some of the other Christians there when he was there to speak at a conference. They said this was the local schoolmaster. They said he was one of the best church workers in the district, but he's gone into a very sad condition. He's given up all his church work. He just manages to keep going in his school. But as for church life and activity, he's become more or less useless. Lloyd-Jones did indeed meet with that man and saw in him something of what we see in our text here in Luke 24. It's a lengthy account, but uh, it's important and helpful, I think, and so I'm going to read you what Lloyd-Jones says happened. This man, the schoolmaster, came to see me. I said to him, you look depressed. He was like the men on the road to Emmaus. One glance at this man told me all about him. I saw the typical face and attitude of a man who is depressed and discouraged. I said, now tell me, what's the trouble? Well, he said, I get these headaches. I'm never free from them. I wake up with one in the morning and I can't sleep too well either. He added that he also suffered from gastric pains and so on. Tell me, I said, how long have you been like this? No, he said, it's been going on for years. As a matter of fact, it's been going on since 1915. I'm interested to hear this, I said. How did it begin? He said, well, when the war broke out in 1914, I volunteered very early on and went into the Navy. Eventually, I was transferred to a submarine, which was sent to the Mediterranean. Now, part of the Navy I belonged to was involved in the Gallipoli campaign. I was there in this submarine in the Mediterranean during that campaign. One afternoon, we were engaged in action. We were submerged in the sea, and we were all engaged in our duties when suddenly there was a terrible thud, and our submarine shook. We had been hit by a mine, and down we sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean. You know, since then, I've never been the same man. Well, I said, please tell me the rest of your story. But he said, there's really nothing more to tell. I've just been telling you that's all that ever happened to me since I've been in the Mediterranean. But my dear friend, I said, I really would be interested to know the remainder of the story. But I've told you the whole story. This went on for some considerable time. Again, I said, now tell me the rest of the story. And I took him over it step by step. And we came to that dramatic afternoon, the thud, the shaking of the submarine. Down we went to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Go on, I said. He said, there's nothing more to be said. I said to him, are you still at the bottom of the Mediterranean? You see, physically he was not, but mentally he was. He had remained at the bottom of the Mediterranean ever since. So I went on to say to him, that's your whole trouble. All your troubles are due to the fact that in your own mind, you are still at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Why didn't you tell me that somehow or another you came up to the surface, that someone on another ship saw you, got hold of you, got you on board the ship, that you were treated there and eventually brought back to Wales and put into a hospital? Then I got all the facts out of him. I said, why didn't you tell me all that before? You stopped at the bottom of the Mediterranean. It was because this man had damned up in his mind that he was suffered from this terrible depression all those years. I'm happy to be able to tell you that as a result of this explanation, the man was perfectly restored. Now, I tell you this story simply in order to show you the condition of these men on the road to Emmaus. There they, here they are. We had thought, but oh, what's the use of thinking? They tried Jesus and condemned him unjustly. They crucified him. He died and they buried him and he's in the tomb. They were so certain of this that they had become oblivious of everything else and blind to everything else. And I have a fear, my dear friends, that that is the trouble with so many of us. 
We're so aware of the problems, so immersed in them that we have forgotten all of the glory that is around us and have seen nothing but the problems that lead to this increasing dejection. That is my analysis of these men on the road to Emmaus. Now, I tell you that story because I see a remarkable, a remarkable sense of pastoral care there. And I wonder for us, if we were here last week celebrating the resurrection of Christ on Sunday, rejoicing in God's provision of salvation, yet spent the week as if it was any other, perhaps even listless and discouraged spiritually. I wonder if we're prone like these disciples, like the man here in this story, to disconnect what we believe to be true of Christ with how we live our day-to-day lives. Actually, I'll tell you, I don't wonder. I know that's what we do. I am certain that's what we do. From my own experience and from the experience I've had countless times sitting across from some of you in my office, in my study, in my home, in a coffee shop, hearing about the difficulties that we face. And I know this is our common problem. We forget what we say we believe, what we know to be true, especially of the risen Christ. But here in this passage, we find hope. We are both confronted for our faithlessness, but also provided comfort and encouragement in the risen Christ. And so with that prospect before us, we want to journey with these men to Emmaus, that our own eyes might be open, that our own hearts might burn with a life that is changed in the presence of the risen Lord. As we unpack this passage, we want to begin by seeing the dashed hopes of these two disciples who saw in Jesus the promise of a Redeemer. The promise of the Redeemer. Luke begins the account by telling us that it happened that very day. What day? The day we just read about in verses 1 through 12 and looked at last Sunday. Namely, Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection, the third day after his death. That very day, two of the disciples were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. So here are two people traveling together. They are disciples of Jesus. They likely have celebrated Passover in Jerusalem and are now heading home talking about the things that had happened. What things? All the things about Jesus. His arrest, his, his unjust trial, his public crucifixion, and now the fact that the body is gone. We know from verse 18 that one of the disciples was named Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. And some have speculated that it was the wife of Cleopas. Others have speculated that perhaps it was even Luke himself, whoever it was. We're told in verse 15 that while they were talking, discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So here are these guys caught up in their own thoughts, their own conversation, probably looking down and dejected as they walked and thought about these things. And suddenly here's this other traveler walking beside them. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they just stop. And they just say, are, are you the only guy in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been happening? Are you completely unaware of what's just taken place this past few days? And Jesus presses further. He says, what things? Now, not knowing that they're talking to Jesus, they begin talking about Jesus. They begin explaining to Jesus, this is who Jesus was, who he is, and why we put all of our hopes on 
him. Both of them begin talking now, and you wonder, are they, are they passing off? One beginning to add in details of the other, we don't know. But here's what together both of them say. Con- the, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, but Jesus, they did not see. Notice that these men had put all their hopes on Jesus. Specifically, verse 11, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They they looked at Jesus, they followed him, they believed in him, and they thought, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ. Now, what led them to believe that? What did they see in Jesus that made them think he is the Redeemer? Well, first of all, they saw his deeds of mercy. They saw his deeds of mercy. They believed that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. Now let's just think about Luke's gospel for a second. What has Luke recorded for us? What did Jesus do? Well, he drove out demons from those that were possessed. He cleansed lepers. He healed a paralytic. He made whole a man who once had a withered hand. He healed a centurion servant without even touching them, without even being in the house. As he's walking there, the centurion says, look, I'm a man of authority. I know what it means. You You just will it to happen and my servant will be healed. And that's exactly what Jesus did, commending him for his faith. And then beyond all expectations, Jesus even raised back to life a widow's only son. Friends, that's just the first seven chapters of Luke. These are the things that Jesus is doing, mighty in the power of God like no other prophet that has come before. Why? Because though backwards in terms of time, forwards in, front of, in terms of God's plan, Jesus was the pattern. Jesus was the standard. Jesus was the perfection of everything a prophet was to be. And all the other prophets that came before were patterned after he who was coming. And so it should be no surprise that there was a building of intensity, a building of the miraculous, so that when Jesus comes, he is mighty in power like no one has seen before. It's not surprising then also if Jesus is the the, the pinnacle of what prophets are to be like, that just like the prophets of the old covenant, Jesus was not merely known for his miraculous deeds. He was also known by his teaching of God's word. And that's what they observed in him that made them think he was the Messiah. Not just his deeds of mercy, but also his teaching from the word. In fact, this was the primary function of prophets. You go back and you read through the Old Testament, you read through the prophets, and what you see is the main thing they're known for is not miracles, it's not telling the future, it's preaching God's word. In that context, it was the law. They were preaching the law and preaching that God's people needed to bring their lives into alignment with it. So you have Elijah doing the, 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 the battle at Mount Carmel, as it were, against a false god. And of course, Yahweh wins. And so what does he say? He says, look, this miraculous thing has happened. Now what are you going to do about it? 
He'll just say, oh, wow, that was really cool. Fire came down and blew the whole thing up. No, he says, stop limping between two gods. Decide who you're going to serve, Yahweh or Baal. That's why Elijah was there, to call the people back to faithfulness to God. And Jesus did the same thing from the outset. What did he say? Repent and believe the gospel. And then Jesus spent the next three years unpacking what that meant. What, what does it look like to repent? Well, what does true repentance look like? What does it mean to live a life of repentance? And then more than that, what does it mean to live a life of faith in the promises of God? What does it mean to believe the good news that is culminating in Him, Jesus Himself? And so Jesus is not only doing mighty deeds, performing miracles, showing mercy, all of those things are simply authenticating His message. They are showing that he is indeed a prophet from God who is pointing people to him through the word. Now, these two disciples and many others saw this clearly, and that's why they put their hope in him. I mean, let's just step back for a minute and think about this. You know, we can criticize these people, as they will be in just a minute, for, for not understanding, but do you see how depressed they are? Why is that? Because they have built their entire life around Jesus. All of their hopes for the future, all of their desires for life have been built around Jesus. And just in that alone, I find conviction. Because most of us don't do that. We have our retirement funds, we have our business, we have our family, we have so many of the things that we pin our hopes and dreams and desires on rather than on Christ who is meant to be the center of all things, including our lives. This messianic reality was clear. But though they saw the promise of the Redeemer in Jesus, they could not see the plan of redemption. They could not see the plan of redemption. And because they couldn't see that plan, these disciples were downcast and without hope. What's the first thing that Jesus says to these guys as they explain why they're so sad, why they're so sorrowful? Foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Now, I'm not sure that would be the first thing I would necessarily say in a counseling session. I'll just be honest. But Jesus is the master counselor. And he can see often what we have to draw out of people like Lloyd-Jones had to do in that illustration. He can see immediately into the deepest parts of our hearts and he knows what our struggle is. And so just like the angels rebuke the women, so Jesus here rebukes them. He says, here's your problem. You don't believe. You don't really believe. They've heard Jesus preach. They're familiar with the scriptures, but they haven't actually believed what he said. Isn't it interesting? They even say, it's the third day. But they don't, they don't they don't really know what's supposed to happen on the third day. They don't say, well, we thought Jesus was going to come back to life, but we can't find the body. They didn't even say that. They said, and it's the third day, as if, you know, Jesus said something about the third day, but I don't really know what, what's going on. Why is it important? They're foolish and slow of heart to believe. Notice all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is saying, look, you you did well in that you trusted God, you listened to the scriptures, but here's your problem. You didn't listen to all of it. You didn't believe all of it. You filtered what you heard through popular opinion and your personal expectations so that what you could not see is what the Christ was supposed to be. Instead, what you heard and what you were looking for, what you wanted is what 
you wanted the Christ to be, what the crowds wanted the Christ to be. Rather than a savior, you wanted a king who would pick up the sword and drive out the Romans from the land of Israel and establish a kingdom again. That's what you were looking for. That's not what came, and therefore, you're sorrowful. You're depressed. You can't see the reality of what God is doing. Once again, we have to stop and just make this observation and say, do we do the same thing? Do we come to God's word? Do we open its pages? And are we more concerned to see here, to hear here what we want to see, what we want to hear, what validates our lifestyle and it makes it easy for us to excuse our sin? Or do we want to hear the voice of God? See, this was the problem that led them to not believe the scriptures, to not have joy and confidence and hope in what God was doing in his plan to redeem. And the same is going to be true for us. If we don't pray and ask God to take off the blinders, the preconceived ideas, and the, the, the sin that so easily blurs and obscures and blinds us to God's word that we might see it clearly. Jesus not only rebukes, though, he also instructs. Notice verse 26. He says, Oh, foolish to believe all the prophets, not to not believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I love what Matthew Henry says about this verse, and I couldn't agree more. He says, Here is the discovery which Christ at length made of himself to them. One would have given a great deal for a copy of the sermon Christ preached to them. Amen and amen. But then you know what he goes on to say? It is, it is not in God's will for us to have that, and he gives us more or less the substance of it in the rest of the Bible. In other words, it's clear to see if we have eyes to see. And that's all that Jesus is doing here. We're going to talk more about it next week because Jesus is going to take the apostles to the exact same Bible study the, the, the first seminary, Christian seminary class, taking them through all the scriptures, interpreting them in light of his own personal work. But for now, we need to make this observation. All the scriptures are about Christ. We have a Christ-centered book, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. So if you're studying Mark and all you see is discipleship, you've missed it. Mark says a lot about discipleship, but Mark is not about being a disciple. Mark is about Christ. And how we live in light of Christ. And so also, we need to avoid the classic liberal problem of trying to pit the words of Jesus against the rest of the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that somehow those red letters are more important or contradicts or stands above the rest of the Bible. Paul, a disciple of Jesus, makes clear that all the scriptures are profitable for us. All of them are inspired by God. Nevertheless, Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. They are all about him. He is the very heart of that body of divinity, which we call the word of God. That means you're never really going to understand what the Bible says, what it means, what God intends for it to do in our lives, unless you read it through the personal work of Jesus Christ. So, so when we approach the Bible, it's kind of like that scene in National Treasure where you get the Ben Franklin glasses 
And you've got all those colored lenses that you can flip up and down. It's like the first 3D things. Uh, of course, now they don't use colored lenses for 3D. Some of you that are younger, you used to get cool red and blue, and you were like, whoa, look at this. That's how we're supposed to look at the scriptures, right? So, so the dude in the movie puts it on, and he begins closing these things down, and what happens? Woo, suddenly he gets a 3D vision of the treasure map. But guess what? You put any of those lenses out of alignment, and you're only seeing part of the map. And so when we come to the scriptures, Jesus is that focusing lens. He is what allows us to bring to crystal clarity our understanding of God's word. And you say, well, how do you get all that from here? Well, I don't just get it from here, but this is one scripture among many that points in that direction. Jesus himself criticized the Pharisees in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life but it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. So you're not honoring the scriptures, he says, because you don't come after me. If you were really searching them with eyes to see, you would say, wait, this is Jesus. Born in Bethlehem. This is, this is the guy. Listen to what he's preaching. Listen to what he's doing. Listen to what God is doing around him. And instead, they say, no, we don't like him. He's not the savior we were looking for. And so they move on. But according to verse 26, Jesus says, all, the, all of it is about me. But he highlights two specific threads, two threads that these guys were unable to see, two threads that if we can't see, we, we won't know Je the real Jesus. And therefore, we will not have salvation. What are those two threads? That the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. And so here, Jesus wants these disciples to see wasn't it necessary that the, Christ, that the Christ would come and experience a cross of suffering? That he would experience the cross of suffering? Now, let's just be honest. Seven miles is not long enough to go over a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the Old Testament. I don't care how slow they went. Uh, so you know he's hitting the highlights. He, he, he's pulling on this thread and, and the, the big pieces are, are moving as it were. So, so what passages, what passages might he have drawn on? What, what passages, as Jesus is, is kind of skipping a stone across the lake of Scripture, is he hitting these major passages Say, look, just th think about, why did God put this here? What are we to understand this to mean? In order to, to highlight the fact that the Christ would suffer. Well, we can think of all kinds of texts, right? We can think of the one that, uh, Doug just preached on a few weeks ago about Abraham offering Isaac. We can think about all through Leviticus, the multiplicity of atoning sacrifices and offerings that would be given. We think about Jesus himself who says, when, when Moses held up the bronze serpent in the wilderness and numbers, you're supposed to understand, you're supposed to see that is anticipating me. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross as an object of faith. Think about what Jesus has spoke from the cross, applying Psalm 22 and David's agony to himself. We think about probably the most famous passage in the scriptures, Isaiah 52 and 53, about the suffering servant and how he would be our substitute. He would be our substitute under the wrath of God against our sin. But notice he says there's another thread too. There's another thread that, that you're missing and that you're failing to see, especially on this third day, and that is the fact that the Messiah would not just have a cross of suffering, but also a crown of glory. A crown of glory. Jesus makes clear throughout his teaching, in fact, he was tempted on this very thing in the wilderness. There is no victorious king without first a suffering servant when it comes to the Messiah. There is no crown without the cross. Nevertheless, there is still a crown. 
There's still a victorious king. There is still a resurrection after his death. And after the, so after the, the, the glory of the cross, there is a greater glory in Christ's return to the Father in heaven. So once again, we say, as he's developing this theme, as he's tracing this Christological thread of the Old Testament, what passages, what texts is he pointing to? Well, the most obvious one is Genesis 3, right? The, the promised son. As he does battle with this serpent, ultimately taking back what Adam lost as the second Adam, as the promised son. Yeah, he's going to crush the serpent's head, but his own heel is going to be struck first. He will endure suffering before glory. Perhaps we think about Joseph's ordeal towards the end of Genesis. At the end, he is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, but that's not how he started. He started with a life of suffering experiencing the lowest depths, despised by his family, sold into slavery, languishing, forgotten in prison apart from God. And yet in the end, he was exalted. We think as David's greater son, perhaps of David's own life, Saul has failed to trust God. He has failed to obey God. Therefore, Samuel rips a cloak and says, the kingdom's ripped from you. You're no longer fit to be king over Israel. And he goes out and he anoints David as king. And the spirit of leadership rushes upon him. But David didn't ascend to the throne immediately, did he? David is looked back to as the pinnacle of godly kings in the Old Testament. But he didn't start that way. He started running for his life, suffering under a vengeful Saul, living in caves, starving, always wondering if he was going to be killed. On and on we go, all throughout the Old Testament, all kinds of promises and prophecies and patterns of people, all saying the same thing. It is necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory. That's what Jesus is unfolding to them, the plan of redemption. And when they grasp that, when they understand it, when we today grasp it and understand it, then we will experience the power of the resurrection the power of the resurrection. After this amazing walk to Emmaus, Luke says that they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Jesus begins to wind down the conversation. They're getting ready to to perhaps uh, leave the main road and go off on a small road towards his village. And and Jesus has stopped and he's not going with him. And they think, well, well, he's going to keep going, but we don't want him to leave. This is amazing. We've never saw this before. So they they urge him. They beg him, no, stay stay with us for the night. Let's not end the Bible study. And so they said, just stay with us. It was a, a display of generosity and hospitality on their part. And Jesus agreed. And Luke tells us that they went in, and as good, as good hosts, they offered food. While he was at the table with him, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, it's, it's not as if, you know, oh, they caught me, I'm out of here. You know, uh, that's not the point. The, the, the point was, we'll see in a minute, his work was done with them. There were other disciples to see. But isn't it interesting? Just like he fed the 5,000, he took that bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And it was in that moment of understanding that he allowed their eyes to be opened, to see who he really was. In fact, this is the first evidence of the resurrection's power. It brings spiritual sight. It brings spiritual sight. Again, some have speculated that 
Cleopas and the other disciple didn't recognize Jesus because his appearance had so dramatically changed. Or perhaps they say they were so depressed they couldn't see you in front of them. I think that completely misses Luke's point. They were kept from seeing Jesus, and then he opened their eyes. Now you have to wonder, though, what was, he, was he clever about it? Because as they're walking, you know, he could just kind of be walking along, walking along, and he's telling them all these things, and he's animated. And, and then when they sit down to eat, he fully extends his hands, perhaps out from the robe, to pick up the bread and to bless it and hand it to them. And as they take the piece, they see those nail-scarred hands, and God opens their eyes to see this is the risen Christ that was promised. However it was, Luke had makes it clear in verse 16 that they were kept from recognizing him and now they are intentionally having their eyes open. The question is, why did he not allow them to recognize him at first? What was the point? If it was intentional and not just a problem with them, if God was the one doing it, why was God doing it? Here's, here's why I think God did that. And I think here's why it's helpful to those early Christians and why it's helpful to us. Jesus knew that some of his disciples, a little over 500, would see him physically raised from the dead. But how many billions more would never see him physically raised from the dead until he returns? They would, as Paul says, have to live by faith and not by sight. And I think what Jesus is doing here is setting a pattern for us as well. As John Bloom says, he had to open their heart eyes before he opened their physical eyes. Before we will ever see Jesus face to face, we must behold him by faith. How did he bring about faith? How did he get them to see that, yes, the Christ would have to suffer, that, yes, the Christ would be raised? He took them to God's word. Now, I don't know about you, but I, part of me just finds this absolutely normal and absolutely astonishing. He, here is, here's God in the flesh, right? He, he's done the work of earning salvation. He has propitiated wrath. He has achieved righteousness for his people. He is gloriously raised. How would you reveal yourself to the world? I mean, you know, maybe I've seen too many movies, but I'm just thinking as those first rays of those fingers of, of light come reaching over the horizon, I would have just exploded the tomb. I mean, just left this crater there. Light emanating out. People be like, what in the world? Running and seeing and be like, I said on the third day I would rise again. I am the Christ. That's what I would have done. That's not what he did. That's not what he did. And even to these guys, he doesn't say, hey guys, it's me. You know, you're worried about all this stuff, don't worry. That's not what he does. He preaches a sermon from the Old Testament. He doesn't even give them new words. He takes God's word and just walks them through. Why? Because here's the point I think that we need to walk away from. We need to understand the way that God grants faith the way that he grants saving faith for the first time, sustaining faith for the long haul, is always by opening our eyes through the scriptures. Someone comes to you and says, I got a vision and I believe, it won't last. Someone says, I got a, I got a burning in my heart, it's not going to last. Someone says, I got a feeling in my gut, it's not going to last. Someone says, I was rescued from a train crash, it's not going to last. Because that's not how God creates faith in people. It's the reason why Ezekiel 37 was on my mind. 
He creates faith. He grants life. He brings about change as the Spirit applies the Scriptures, the Word of God, to our lives. So this is how even today we have communion with Christ. We experience joy of fellowship with Him. We have the blindness of our eyes relieved and burning faith in our hearts created. It's, it's by walking with Jesus through His Word. And again, you may come back and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have the Spirit, right? We have the Spirit, yes, but and that's glorious. But what does the Spirit do? What is His job for us? In John 15, the Spirit points us to Christ. How? John 16, Ephesians 6, and on and on. The Spirit points us to Christ through the Word. He inspired the Word, and now He illuminates the Word. He gives us understanding. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that apart from the Spirit being a spiritual person, you cannot see Christ in the world. The gospel is foolishness. But by the Spirit, the gospel, the Word, is life and forgiveness and faith and change. So, I don't want to sound harsh, but we, I have heard both out of my mouth and from the mouths of others every excuse in the world not to be in the Word, right? I mean, we, we know what they are. We've all said them. We've all used them. Here's why I can't spend time regularly reading or listening to the Scriptures. But here is the thing that you must understand that you cannot escape. You will not have a close relationship with God you will not have a faith that is sustained through the most difficult times of your life. You will not be mature in Christ. You will not be close to God's people unless you are abiding in the Scriptures. Because when you abide in the Scriptures, your eyes are opened by the power of the risen Christ because it's with Him we have fellowship. He says in John 15, How are you to abide in me? Abide in my word. If we're not willing to do that, we're never going to have spiritual sight. We're never going to have faith. Not going to happen. But here's the thing. We not only have spiritual sight, we also through the power of the resurrection have encouraged words. And I alluded to this earlier. They say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Remember how it opened? They're devastated. I mean, they, they just... They just they don't know how they're going to go on. They had pinned all their hopes on Jesus, and now they think it's over. And what did Jesus do? He said, let's take a little journey from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, and let's see what's supposed to be happening here. It's all culminating, not just in the crucified, but in the risen Christ. And when they get to the end and they see that it is true, that what Christ taught is real, that that's what God expects them to see, they are overjoyed. They think about this exposition after Jesus is gone and they say, did not our hearts burn within us? Were we not excited? Were we not uh, alivened by what we were hearing? The slump of their sadness their disconsolate nature suddenly and radically changed. Their hearts were filled with joy and understanding. Why? Because the power of the risen Christ was revealed through the Word of God. And we have to look at ourselves today and say, can we not also find the same encouragement? Can we not find the same stability knowing our King lives? 
Knowing that he has all authority as the resurrected Christ. He loves us that he will never leave us or forsake us. This is the power of the resurrection through God's word. That we have spiritual sight. That we have encouragement to sorrowful hearts. But then also notice what it leads us to. A joyful speaking of Christ. A joyful speaking of Christ. I love that they finally arrive at the home. They sit down to have a meal together. They realize it's Jesus in front of them. And what do they do? They get right back up and go back to Jerusalem. Seven miles, baby. Here we go. Why? So as they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Once they've experienced the power of the resurrection, they say, we got to tell somebody about this. We got, we got to get this out there. We, we got to make this known. And it shouldn't be any different with us. And somehow we say, well, maybe. No, Jesus makes this clear in every gospel. Not just before he dies and is raised back to life, but after he's raised back to life, he makes clear, you're my disciple, go make disciples. This is what we do now. You follow after me, you go tell others about me so that they can follow me as well. So the empowerment, the drive to evangelize, to share Christ, to go on mission is not guilt. It's not the attainment of righteousness. It's not making, uh, making ourselves worthy of a church or some other group. It's the power of the resurrection. Christ risen indeed changes everything. Everything, at least it should. Let me preface and say, I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm not trying to be political, but... This is how my mind works, okay? One of the reasons I have a very hard time taking climate change as anything other than a political tool is because I see no change in the lifestyle of those who preach it. So, 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 so they're out there saying, look, the seas are going to rise. The earth is going to be permanently damaged. This is the greatest threat to global security. We've got to reduce carbon emissions. Fine. But what are you doing? But what are you, politician, doing about this? If they all ditched their private planes, if they carpooled to the Senate offices, if they changed their petty games and made this their number one priority, if they weren't stockholders in the carbon, as, the, the carbon offset fund companies, I might be like, whoa, they're serious about this. I, I better, maybe I should pay attention to this. But they don't do any of that. They, they live no differently despite the message of doom and gloom that they proclaim. Notice the contrast with Cleopas and the other disciples. The, resurrect, the resurrection of Christ changes everything for them. Not just personally, but for the world. They experience a personal transformation and they've got to go tell somebody else about it. When you read Acts, the sequel to Luke, you see the world is set on fire. It is turned upside down over the next 50 years. How? How has it changed? By slaves and centurions and fishermen and former Pharisees all believing and preaching and living in light of this same message. Christ is risen. And it makes all the difference in the world to them. Everything about their life changes because of this reality. Their lives are fueled by the explosive joy of knowing Christ died for me and God raised him back to life. And, and as I see this and I think about this, here's the weight that I feel. Is that obvious in my life? Can someone look at me and say, 
Look at, look at Botkin. Look at him. Look at how he lives. Look at what he says. Look at what he does. It's clear. Christ is risen. I will ask you the same thing. Is, is that the response of your life? Can people look at you and know? Maybe if they don't even believe it. They know you believe it, that Jesus is alive. That Jesus is alive. So as we arrive at the end, let's resolve together to go regularly to the word of Christ for our own lifelong Emmaus experience. Let, let us resolve to go to the scriptures, not looking to have our own wants and desires fulfilled, to have our own sin excused, but praying to have our eyes opened and our hearts warmed by communion with the risen Christ. That our lives might be changed and the world might know it. Father, this is my sincere prayer for us this morning. We pray, Lord, I pray, that you grant it to us to open our eyes, to make our hearts to burn with joy because you've raised your son back from the dead. God, change us by speaking this truth to us from your word. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.